Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bass. And thank you for listening, David. Uh, I, I always listen. You're welcome. How are you? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so we've got stuff to get to. Yeah. But I don't know what order we should go in. I think the first thing I want to do is I want to hear your... You, you have a story you wanted to share. Okay. I think that's where we should start. I have a story, but it's, it's rooted in, in other things right now. With, that I needed to say, I like there's some serious things, and then this less serious thing. Okay, it felt very serious at the time. So uh, I have said uh, on the show that I've I deal with uh, depression and stuff, and the last two years have been particularly bad. Um, listeners of more than one lesson can attest to that because uh, I've been very personal on there. Um, but in the last probably six to seven weeks, uh, I. I've genuinely felt myself getting better. Uh, you know, Good. like there's that phrase of like, Oh, like, well, we're not out of the woods yet. I, I now find myself understanding the concept of out of the woods mm-hmm. that I feel like I'm emerging from uh, a, a very dark place and I'm better able to handle rough emotional situations. Uh, like for example, okay, today, today I posted, uh, the new more than one lesson mini sewed and I had accidentally uploaded last week's mini sewed. Yeah. And I didn't realize, and I realized that while I was out at a grocery store and like literally like eight or nine months ago, I had a similar situation and I was in the car and all I did was scream at myself for five straight minutes Mm -hmm. and completely freak out. This time I was like, Oh shoot, better get home. And then I'll take care of it. Yeah, like go. That's great. It was, it was that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm, I've been feeling pretty good. Here's the problem, David. Okay. When I am feeling good, and this is, by the way, something that I have to work through in therapy. Um, when I am feeling good, I get more confident in myself. Oh, okay. And then I start to worry that I'm becoming uh, obnoxious to other people. Because as my therapist says, when I get confident, like overconfident, it results in what he refers to as defiance. (laughs) So this is where we will come to my story. So I just finished working for this this organization that, uh, that I won't give the name of, but they're great. I really like them. My bosses are super awesome. And it's just, and it's a a program that I think I just like in general as an idea. Uh, it's part of this thing that, that refer to as study tours where kids from other countries will go to a place in this case for like two weeks, they will learn something about that place while also going on tours of that place. So, uh, here, uh, kids, would come here for two weeks. And for one of those weeks, they would learn about the industry of Los Angeles, which is to say filmmaking, uh, while also touring various places in Los Angeles. And so I, I taught three separate batches of those kids. And the, the third batch is when I, I guess like a bunch of kids came in, like my classroom went from five in batch two to 25. Mm. And that was, and I was only one of three teachers. So like, so like batch number three was uh, like 80 kids spread out over three classrooms. And it meant that the kids were more closely monitored 
by the some of their instru- all the kids are from Italy mm-hmm. by some of their instructors who came over as well. Okay, so the day came when we had to watch Zootopia. That was part of the curriculum, mm-hmm. part of the pre-approved curriculum. By the way, that's important. And so we started watching it, and uh, <laughs> and one of these supervisors, who has no actual authority over me, by the way, okay, um, came into the room, got my attention, called me out while the uh, while the movie's going on, and pulled me into the hallway and was saying like saying like I, I, th- this is unacceptable. Like for this, so this is, this is session number five sessions. One through four are just me lecturing about film history. Session five is watching Zootopia. And then six through 10 is all group work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so this uh, woman was very upset that, uh, that they weren't working in groups that they, that they weren't talking with each other. And I said like, well, if you give it to the end of the movie, we're going to have a group discussion about the movie. And then for the entire rest of the class, it's all group work. And she's like, ah, it's just, it's just like the, the kids, they're just falling asleep. And it's like, what, what are you talking? They're not falling asleep. I'm in the class with them. They're right there. I see them. And so she was just like really, really like upset at the idea of the kids just sitting and watching listening, or like either listening to me or watching a movie. But the movie I think was the last straw for her. And so I said like, well, this this was part of the curriculum that you approved. Yeah. And, and so she said like, she's like, well, I just, you know, they're just, they're just sitting and watching a movie. I was like, well, it is a film class. Yeah. And so here's where the confidence, Uh because before I probably would have just like been like, like, no, okay, I'll see if I, if there's something I can do now. It's like, well, it is a film class and you did approve the curriculum. Now it's moving into defiance uh-huh. because now, uh, she has brought, now she brings in another person and now both of them are coming at me and saying like, well, well this, this is not acceptable. The families are gonna Their parents are going to get so mad at us. And I was like, it's part of the curriculum. What, what, what do you want me to do? And so finally, uh, one of them said, <laughs> one of them said like, well, can you at least like s- just watch segments of the film? And then talk about it and then watch another segment of the film. And I said, well, that's not exactly the way the the filmmakers planned it, is it? Uh (laughs) I was like, that's not the way it was intended. It's like, this is a film class. We should at least watch one film in its entirety. I've been watching clips and trailers for the last several days trying to get my point across. This is one entire film. And it's like, but you could you could talk about the the characters like and where do the characters go? emotionally and so and and it's just like and in my mind I'm like you need to calm down uh-huh. and so but i was right of course you were right and thankfully Although I'm still it's, it's i still I, I know this isn't the point why did you you spend five sessions or four sessions on film history and then Zootopia, which is the culmination of all of film well, history. I don't understand is, why Zootopia. So it's film history, not mere uh, film history, and the w- and also the way that society, cult- uh, society and culture impacts film, and the okay. way film impacts culture and society. So I did not pick Zootopia. Somebody, I wrote the first four section, uh, <clears throat> sessions, and then someone wrote the last six. Uh, but Zootopia is it's this idea. It's like it's a mainstream film that the kids are probably familiar with, but it's 
And so it's taking something that they saw when they were younger and saying, yes, but look at how much deeper you can now, look how old are now. These that kids? They're high school age. And Zootopia is what, two years old? Two years old. And so, like, some of my kids were 14. And so that they seems, were 12. That, that seems to me like that the the doldrums the the valley and when you're not sure. watching kid movies like when they're tweens yeah yeah you're you're too old for that shit and you're not old hey, enough look, to like the first session i threw zootopia out and we watched united 93 okay yeah that was me making a choice but these kids actually seemed excited at zootopia excited to re because they had all seen it excited to re-examine having now learned okay about film history and excited to read more into it and so i don't understand what this lady's problem was i don't either and i and literally i was like ma'am i can't and i kept found it it's like i haven't called someone ma'am since i worked at blockbuster uh-huh. but i was like ma'am we really are all at this point only arguing about an hour and 15 minutes because after that for the next several days in fact it's group work and she's like, well, this is a, le- it's a, it's a, it's a communications course. And, and that's right. This was another thing I said. She's like, it's a communications course. She's like, it's called film and communication. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what was that first part? Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. You're asking for it. I was asking for it. Thankfully my boss, uh, who that's the problem is that my, my bosses live in New York. Huh. And so I'm the representative here. And so like, it's going to come down on me. My bosses were not having any of this. And so they backed me up a hundred percent, which is great. Um, and suddenly I look like, I looked like the good cop Yeah, and which, but anyway, so that was the, so I wanted to lead up that like, this is the, this is the potential downside of me feeling good about myself. Yeah. And so like, I don't know. I don't understand what this woman's idea of school is. So here, okay, here's, here's the little, uh, the postscript. Uh The kids are picking up on what's going on. Okay. (laughs) And so. Do they like this lady? I'll, I'll, I'll I'll find out. During the break, Uh uh, you know, a lot of kids went to the bathroom and there are, there are like four kids left in the classroom. Kids that were not, that weren't remarkably talkative when I would ask them questions and stuff like that. And, uh, and they came up all of, all four of them came up and said like, I'm so sorry about our teacher. <laughs> and they said, they said like, we want to keep watching the movie. We did. We want to. And it's like, I'm, I'm enjoying it so much more now. And, uh-huh. and they said that I was like, all right. Now part of me is like, man, it's just a kid wants to watch a movie. Um, instead of listen to me. Um, but no. And then afterwards, like, uh, they, all the kids banded together and they said like, it's like, and you know, they've got rather thick accents. So it's kind of adorable. Uh-huh. Um, but they're like, we paid for this, not them. Uh-huh. We paid for this and this, and whatever you want to do is what we want to do. And so I was like, all right, I like this little show of support. And then one yeah. guy said, I'm going to assume ironically, he said power to the people. <laughs> 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 so yeah, well, it was a really, it was a really fun experience, but, uh, but I thought you would appreciate because definitely. you know, you're, you're kind of punk rock uh-huh. and, uh, yeah, or you used know. to be, no, I still am. Uh, or maybe I never was. I don't know. No, I'm very, I'm very punk. That's my official, the official David party line is that I'm still yeah. very punk. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, I, def- I definitely wouldn't have uh, stood for that. There were no. moments when I, when I, like I said, when I was surprised. Like I was saying, 
it was like I was having a debate with like a fellow student in uh-huh. in school, and it's like that's not the situation. I am an adult. I am in a they're in a professional capacity, just as they are. We just have we're cro- yeah. talking across purposes, and I need to be. Now, admittedly, they kept interrupting me, which isn't great, uh-huh. but uh, I I needed to tone it down, be confident without being defiant. So, David and listeners, it is up to you to let me know when I'm getting overly defiant uh, as we talk about movies or politics or whatever in the future. All right. Well, I'm no shrinking violet. I'm not exactly Exactly. going to, yeah, yeah. you know, stand out of the by. Speaking <laughs> of power to the people. Indeed. One of the people who listens to this podcast sent us... A gift. Now, you know, we don't say this on every episode because we're not narcissists. But if you want to send us gifts, you can find our PO box website on the uh, our PO box address on the website under About Us. Is that what it's? Yes. Under? Yeah. So um, we're always up for gifts. Um, we especially like, or at least I, David, especially like uh, candies from foreign exotic lands. Yes. Um, and. Uh, I'm going to go on a limb and say that's a little bit of what we have here. Because Partially because the packing slip says that. Um, <laughs> yeah. It says also, candy from exotic lands. Yeah. Um, you got to declare this shit. Yeah. Um, no, this is from our friend Matthew. Yes. Uh, from um, New Zealand. Yeah. Who I had the pleasure of uh, meeting many years ago when I was uh, visiting. Um, so thank Very you, nice man. Matthew, for oh, he's got a whole note that I'm not going to read because it's it's uh, a little bit long. Um, I won't read it aloud. But, I'll just uh, take a look at it here. Yeah, he sent us some stuff. I don't know if he says who's what's for who, but the main point is he sent us some Tim Tams, which is good because I'm kind of hungry. We got four <laughs> things of Tim Tam. That's two each. So these will last the weekend uh, for me. Um, yeah, they might right last now. the episode. Uh, I'm not going to eat any right now. Uh, I'm going to eat this one. Oh, they're a little bit melty, unsurprisingly. Uh, yeah, it's been super hot lately. Okay, so... All right, so he sent us some Blu-rays. Oh, there's three of them. We're going to have to fight. Oh, boy. Over one. Well, I already have the Royal Tenenbaums on Blu-ray. All right. Um, do you? I believe I have it on DVD. Well, now you have it on Blu-ray, it looks right. like. Um, and then we've got The Fisher King and Diabolique. Okay. I've seen all three of these. Have um, you? Yes, I have. Okay. I have the Diabolique DVD. I don't okay. have the Blu-ray. And I don't well, have now any. you do. Uh, okay. And then, I don't know, do you want The Fisher King? Sure. All right. You got all The right. Fisher King. Uh, very excited. Thanks, Matt. Very excited. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, yeah. I prefer, I, I don't remember if he prefers uh, Matthew. Uh, I, that looks like Matthew to me. Thank yeah. you, Matthew. Thank you. That's super awesome. So These again, Tams are delicious. Yeah, the PO box address is is on the website. Feel free to send us uh, anything, especially candies from foreign lands, uh, especially if they are cherry ripes or just Tim Tam. Which is yeah, yeah. I think uh, uh, when it comes to that area of the world, the uh, Australian, New Zealand. The, the the region four DVD area, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we both like both, but I think Tyler's more of a Tim Tam guy, and I'm more of a Cherry Ripe guy. Um, thank you so much. All right, so let's pay some bills, huh? Indeed. Uh, yeah, I, sh- I should have waited till you swallowed your Tim Tam. Sorry. All right, so this episode is brought to you by Mubi. 
a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi are the first three films by Francois Ozone, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ozone? Uh, I don't know how you say it, but um, yeah, I'm a big fan of him. These uh, include the film Sitcom, the film Criminal Lovers, and Water Drops on Burning Rock. So I was looking up uh, Sitcom specifically because the the title intrigued me. And here's what it's about. Okay. In Sitcom, a family lives in peaceful harmony until the father brings home a pet rat. (laughs) (laughs) Already we're we're headed down a good path. As each family member comes into contact with the rat, one by one they quickly go to pieces and their hidden sexual and uh, psychological perversions are exposed. Now, David, I know what you're thinking. Sexual and psychological perversions, that's not the ozone I know. (laughs) Um, But uh, but yes, that sounds really fascinating to me uh, that uh, that this rat just shows up and uh, throws everything off. But anyway, so, uh, so that film is called Sitcom. And uh, it is just one of the films available on Mubi right now. There are 29 others. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the Mubi ad on the left-hand side. And I would like to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great and they sound great. I know because I use them every day. So does Tyler. Today I was listening to the new Robin song, Missing You. New music from Robin. That's fun. Um... And, uh, and yesterday they you great. saw Christopher Robin. Uh, yesterday I saw Christopher Robin. Today I was like, gotta gotta wash that out of my brain. Uh, <laughs> listen to some Robin. Um, sounded great. Sounded fantastic on my TweakedAudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at TweakedAudio.com. But if you use the offer code Pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to TweakedAudio.com and use the offer code Pretension. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. This was your idea, but uh, we're turning it in. We're, this is a bit of an experiment, maybe, possibly. Yeah. This might be something that we're going to do more of. Um, what I want to call, I'm not sure if you had come up with a name for it. Mm-mm. I wanted to call it our Milestones series. Mm. So today, we'll be talking about milestones in film history, specifically in the field of editing. Yes. Uh, and so I think I've already like kind of made some notes for... For future versions, cinematography we could do a five-hour-long episode. It's a, it's a big one. I have to break yeah, that this into is two parts. Be, um, editing is pretty rough too. Like I had to uh, narrow this down yeah? significantly. Um, but I also realized we could do a great one on special effects. Sure, I did a lot. I found a lot of research there. Uh, I would like to do one on women in in, in mm-hmm. specifically women in Hollywood or African Americans in Hollywood. That would be mm-hmm. uh, a great series. Um, yeah, found some. I would like to do one on makeup. Yeah, I I, 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 I thought of some. I, I thought of a lot for a lot of the. I, and I found a few makeup, a few production design, a couple of stunts. Yeah, uh, that sure. would be cool. Um, but uh, today we are starting. Potential. If this goes well, this will be a series. Um, that we'll revisit at irregular intervals. Yeah. Um, it's on the bubble uh, right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're going to start with e- with editing. So here's um, here's okay. where this started. I'll say this: okay. uh, having. 
having to design a curriculum that will last 12 hours because each of these sessions for this class that I did was three hours long and you have to cover, you know, 1890 to present, you, you know, 12 hours is a long time, but not really as it turns out, (laughs) uh, when you're trying to cover that much and you're trying to teach, you know, the history of film, but also talk about like specific theories, not that cinematography is a theory, but uh, you know, along the way you want to talk about like, well, what is editing and what does that mean? What is cinematography and what does that mean? Stuff like that. Um, genre theory and, you know, trying to incorporate this other stuff into it. Um, but it got me thinking about like, okay, so if I had to boil, boil it down, and this is something you and I talked about over text as a, as a, another possible idea, Mm -hmm. you know, if I had to boil it down to like, okay, if I, if I wanted to teach somebody what film is not, not teach somebody how to make a film, but just what it is, you know, and I, and I only had movies to go with no textbooks or anything like that, which movies would I choose? And so we kind of, we arrived at this milestone idea, splitting it up into different categories. And so I did not necessarily limit myself to any, any specific number. No, I, not at all. And I didn't also didn't limit myself to movies that I see that I've seen. I, cause I, oh, uh, I, I did limit myself to that because <laughs> I went and did research on like, say, okay, here, let's start. Um, 1901 uh, short film the story of a crime is the first film to uh, edit uh, uh, or to use a dissolved transition 1901 that's right. that's a big deal it's also apparently the first film to use uh, um, flashback oh okay Um, and this is uh, by the way I got this from a website uh, that I'm not forgetting the name Um, oh my gosh uh Oh, well, I'll find it and I'll get back to you because I want to give them credit because yeah. uh, I found all these somewhere. Um, uh, but I forgot to write it down. So, yeah, yeah uh, there's other things. Um, I mean, definitely, like, I have a lot of a lot of the ones that I have, especially from the silent era, are what you would expect. Um, I have, well, first off, it's not even a film, but I'd say, like, just the Kuleshov effect. Like just yeah. watch that. It's something that I've shown that I show my classes. Yeah. I showed it at the international Christian film festival this year, um, because it's such a fat, it, it is, that is what editing is. Like take these two yeah. things, put them together and yet, and we will make a story out of it. I mean that, and that idea was there, but the cool show effect itself is 1920. Yeah. So there's more stuff here. You've got, uh, that I want to just mention cause just cause I found this interesting. Um, uh, 1904, The Moonshiner, first film to use narrative titles or intertitles. Hmm. That's kind of editing related, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, um, and then in the 1910s, that sort of... Uh, uh, oh, here's one that's not actually editing, but I'm, re- I'm, really, su- I'm really surprised this happened okay. this way. 1909, D.W. Griffiths, uh, A Corner in Wheat, is quote unquote the first use of freeze frame except okay. it's not a freeze frame the actors all just stood still <laughs> which to me the fact that that happened before we invented the actual freeze frame yeah. is hilarious to me that we that like we i guess we as just human beings we knew we wanted movies to be able to do yeah. that but we hadn't figured it out yet so what's we just funny is it was stand still. They, they stood still giving each other a high five uh-huh. at the end of like a really awesome thing uh, and then yeah. the credits roll yeah um, um but that's what the uh um 
the police squad episodes would always do. You remember yes, that? that's right. Um, and then before that, you've got, I don't want to get, um, too into, into this because obviously it's a problematic title, but the birth of a nation is sure f- not for editing, but for a lot of film techniques, sort of, um, DW Griffith, or as we talked about on the movie journal, uh, Lois Weber, maybe we should go back and sure. use Lois Weber as an example more often, um, of surprisingly advanced, uh, um, editing and filmmaking techniques. Well, using willing- things that it, like basically, in terms of cinematography, which we're not talking about like right. um, getting rid of the proscenium idea and actually using POV shots and mm-hmm. cutting back and forth and over the shoulder shots and uh, and stuff like that, cross cutting um, action scenes, flashbacks, all this stuff. Um, yeah, Birth of a Nation is again not a movie that I would not, that I have ever seen. Yeah, um, all of. Or would recommend people watch all of. You can just watch Intolerance instead. <laughs> well, I was gonna, I was gonna jump to Intolerance. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Birth of a Nation like revolutionized a lot of stuff, and um, but Intolerance, people often think about Intolerance sort of in relation to Birth of a Nation. Like it's usually like what what you just did. Like the AFI did it. Uh-huh. Birth of a Nation was on their first top hundred. Intolerance was on the second one, and Birth of a Nation nowhere to be found. Um, and so like. We we tend to look at it as like the antidote to it, but of course there's a lot going on in Intolerance anyway. Uh, and from an editing standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, and the idea of just having to keep so many different eras, yeah, you know, straight without the use of conventional dialogue. It's the Cloud Atlas of its day. It's I I actually have Cloud Atlas on here. Oh, okay. Um, I, I should have thought about that. But uh, but yeah, it's it's really complex and it's, and it's something that could be seen as confusion confusing. And I actually think it's rather, uh, admirable of, of Griffith to decide, no, this is the way the movie needs to be told. Yeah. Even though he definitely run would run the risk of confusing audiences. Um, yeah. And then, okay. So we mentioned it, but let's go for those who might not know back to the Kuleshov effect sure. and what this idea or what the actual, um, root of it is, which was that um, uh, Lev Kuleshov basically took a shot of an actor looking at something off screen. Yeah. It's the same shot every time. Yeah. And then specifically said, don't react to anything. Yeah. He's just right. not even looking at anything in particular. Um, just off frame. And then cut it with him looking at different things. A baby, like I think a hard-boiled egg at one point. It's a bowl of soup. A bowl of soup. It's okay. a baby in a coffin. Oh. The baby wow. is dead. And a woman on a, uh, you know, on a chaise lounge or something like that, looking okay. very lascivious. Oh, okay. So, and then he would show it to people, the different ones, and say, like, ask them what they thought of the actor's performance. And they would say, oh, he seemed hungry, he yeah, seemed sad, like, he seemed horny, I guess. Yeah, they all thought he was a very good actor and was conveying these things. They would all, they'd watch them all separately. And, and it just, it it takes this idea that like our brains want to make sense of things. We will look for patterns. We will look for themes. Um, and if we find anything, we will seize upon it. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, here's a guy, here's a thing. I'm now going to relate these two things. And in doing so, I will now read more into both shots these two things were were probably not in the same room, probably not shot on the same day. Yeah. And certainly were not meant to be seen 
in context of each other, but our brain contextualizes things. You know, we want to make sense of things. And so the Kuleshov effect shows just how powerful, how big of a role we play in telling the story. And that like an argument, I don't know if this, if if, I don't think Kuleshov necessarily says this, but this idea that filmmakers, it's not that they don't have to work hard, but they realize like, Oh no, we, the audience can be a collaborator. Like they can suggest things and we will fill in the rest. Um, and so, yeah, the Kuleshov effect is a really fascinating idea to me and one that seemed inevitable, like someone just trying to boil editing down to its basics and juxtaposing shots and having us make sense of them. Um, yes. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, film site was the name of the website that I got these from film site, film site, C I T E. No, uh, S I T. Okay. Um, okay. Which is weird so, cause you are citing it. Yes, that's what I'm doing. Um, okay, so now what's interesting, so this is, uh, it seems all the great advancements in editing were made by the Soviets, right? Um, kind of, yeah. Because you've it's got, weird, isn't it? You've got the Kuleshov effect, and then we're, we'll jump to 1925, right? And yeah. the battleship Potemkin, uh, namesake of this, this show. Um, uh, recently, the... Uh, the, the guy at the UPS count, I had to go to the UPS to pick up a package. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was that Grisha's Palace Blu-ray uh, that I watched a few weeks ago. Um, and the guy at UPS was, because uh, the package had Battleship Retention on it, and he was like, wait, is that a reference to... And then, like, yeah, we talked about old movies a little bit, and it was cool. Nice. Um, anyway, uh, the Battleship Potemkin... I would have had a business card in that guy's hand so fast. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't carry them. Um, so, I guess it's almost subconsciously tempting to draw a direct line from the Kuleshov effect to the battleship Potemkin, which uses, uh, the montage effect. Yeah. Um, which now we think of a montage as a more specific thing, like usually set to music, but it is sort of the same idea. Montage is a series of short, short shots. Um, and it is mostly, uh, it's kind of elliptical in the sense that it um, it condenses time. Yeah, a lot of the time. When we think of montages now, we think of a long period of time. Uh, there's the concept of like the training montage, yeah, so yeah, like yeah. it brings together like probably months. Whereas this, an argument could be made that like, for example, the Odessa step sequence, which is like the the most notable uh, yeah. part of it. Um, an argument could be made that that's happening in real time. The sequence does go on for a while, but also not like it's yeah. that that's what's interesting about like Soviet montage is that it's it's taking a lot it's taking this all in it, it these separate things and putting them all together into this one unified idea and this one unified thing it could yeah. be these separate time periods or it could be these separate little stories inside this much larger event. Yeah. And even before the Odessa steps, I mean, obviously that's the most famous. That's the one. Yeah. Like most people our age, I saw the untouchables before I saw sure. battleship Potemkin. Um, uh, but even before that, when you're getting to know the chip, you know, you're yeah. seeing, it is the same thing. It's a bunch of different stories, a bunch of different men in different conditions. Uh, and you're getting the, the whole, it's kind of, I guess, impressionistic. You're getting the impression of the whole, yeah. the whole thing. Um, at, at once. And so what's interesting is that is not obviously the Kuleshov effect has, uh, uh, has an effect on mm-hmm. all editing, but there's not, that's not a one to one or there's not an A to B. Do you right. know what I mean? Because right. it's, 
the collision effect, I guess, describes something more literal, is that I relate this image to this image. Right. You know what I mean? And what montage does, it makes it more almost abstract or metaphysical in a way, like you're relating all these things, but not literally to one another, but all in a holistic way. In a way, it's you're experiencing them. Now, of mm. course, you experience everything, but when it comes to montage, it's almost like the shots are so short and everything's so packed together. It's not really giving you time to intellectualize anything. It's, it's almost all pure feeling. And, and it probably, I don't know if it's meant to put you in the same mindset of the, as the people on screen, but it's definitely meant to pull you in as much as possible. Um, which is why, you know, montage that's even modern, I mean, when you look at like a, a, an action sequence, I mean, that's montage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's yeah. meant to leave you breathless and not, and yes, you can think while you're doing it, you can think while you're watching it, but it's not really meant to play on your intellectual. It's meant to play on, on the instinctive, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, but also, and this is jumping way ahead, but, um, it's also something that couldn't have, in a way, you almost... I'm not sure you could have done it right away. You needed, at this point, over 25 years of cinema. Yes. Because um, you needed audiences to to grow. You know, I remember... Uh, the reason I think about this is... Um, back in film school, I remember... Uh, uh, and this is like, you know, sophomore year undergrad film school. This is pretty basic stuff, but it's like sometimes these one of the great things about going to film school is as after having watched movies your whole life is realizing that you knew things that you didn't know. Yeah. And so one of them that I remember about editing was a shot from, or a sequence from Thelma and Louise, which is the part before the inciting incident where, um, Gina Davis is almost raped and right. they killed the guy. They're at the club and then Gina Davis like leaves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, there's these cuts where it's like, okay, she's closer to the door than she was in the previous cut. And now she's all the way out in the parking lot. It's elliptical editing that would have been confusing to someone when movies were first made. Like how was she jumping through time or whatever? But we know enough about movies to know to just sort of fill in yeah. the, the blank of, uh, uh, yeah, she walked across the dance floor. We don't need to see every second of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, in watching uh, some of the early, early movies, even stuff like you know, A Trip to the Moon or uh, The Great Train Robbery, which move at a pretty good pace, well, the idea of the, of the uh, insert shot was not around yeah. yet. So you just yeah. had these like one camera set up and we're watching the whole scene. And, and yeah, if we if the filmmakers had thought to cut to a close up of a gun or, uh, you know, someone pointing a gun or whatever it is, um, then they actually could have cut out some of the action and we would have made that, uh, we would have filled in the blanks ourselves, but that wasn't a thing yet. The, the insert shot. And so, whereas, you know, an argument can be made like with Soviet montage, it's all intern, it's all insert yeah. shots, but well, we'll get to, uh, I want to make a quick stop before we get, before we continue with the Soviets in 1928, Nine years later, they, uh, or yeah, nine years later, they, no, almost 20 years later, 19 years later, they figured out the freeze frame. The yeah. first uh, known example of a freeze frame is in an Alfred Hitchcock silent movie called Champagne, hmm. uh, which ends 
um, with the thing we've all seen where it's, it's a bunch of people like dancing and then it freezes and then it pulls out and you realize it's like a framed picture, but yeah. it was, you know, it was a moving picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's apparently how, how, uh, champagne ends. And that's the first freeze frame or at least the first one people cite. Incidentally, real quick, I should say that over at my other website, more than one lesson, uh, my writer Reed has been spending the year watching every Hitchcock movie, right? Like from the beginning, and he's still in the early stages. And it's it's astonishing how many movies Hitchcock made that we just don't talk about. Yeah, and so and also how many of them survived because yeah. there's so many movies from the era that he was making yeah. movies didn't survive. And it's and not yet, like he was called an important director at that <laughs> yeah. time, but th- there's only like one big Hitchcock feature. I think that is, that is lost. I think I can't remember exactly, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, if you're interested in like early Hitchcock, head on over to more than one lesson and, uh, go searching for it. Okay, so 1929, we've got Ziga Vertov's The Man with the Movie Camera, which is pure montage. It is 100%. Uh, probably not the first experimental film, but it's probably the earliest yeah. experimental film that I uh, have seen in that it wasn't, it's not trying to get across a narrative in any way, but it, or at least a dramatic narrative. Certainly there is not, a narrative yeah. in the in the sort of more meta way that we use the word narrative now. Yeah. I think there is a narrative that is imparting about about the about the city or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um the film definitely just it's it's full of energy and it just seems like an absolute celebration of film, of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a lot of fun and crazy in a lot of ways. Uh it's it is astonishing to me that like on the most recent sight and sound list, which at this point is six years ago, uh, man with the movie cameras, like in the top 10, mm-hmm. which is, I don't necessarily think that's an oversight, but it is, it's just, well, I guess when people say pure cinema, I guess yeah, that's yeah. what they're talking about. It's yeah. just something that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Narrative, I guess, whatever, who gives a shit? <laughs> well, look at this camera shot. Yeah. Um, so the way that you're, structuring this so we're going on are we going to go back we, no, if we need to okay i mean i'm i'm going chronologically okay. but we're, you know I we're would, both we, we're both we both have our hands on the wheel here yeah, so you can go back if you want okay i just uh and that's the thing we we we're hitting a lot of the same things but i did want to go back because you mentioned experimentation uh i would say sherlock jr uh buster okay. keaton was fascinated with the camera he was fascinated with anything technological really um and, but with most of his movies, the editing was very, very sophisticated, but, uh, fairly run of the mill until you get to Sherlock Jr. And you realize that he's really doing, he's really pushing the boundary and is willing to sacrifice a traditional laugh for maybe a more absurd laugh. So there's a, there's, uh, an extended sequence in which, I guess you could say it's, I don't think it's the first version of this, but it certainly is a, a, a fun experiment in like match on action where Buster is on screen. He, he jumps into an actual movie theater, uh, movie screen. And so he's on a, you know, he's in a movie location and he stays there and then the location will change and he, he will yeah. suddenly have an effect. Like he's going to like, ju- he's going to dive into, uh, the ocean, but then just as he jumps, the ocean turns into like a big, uh, snowy mountain and he just lands right into us, right in a snowbank. And it's just this. And it, right. you know, 
<laughs> but one of the things that, you know, when you watch it, you realize, so he jumped into a movie. What movie is this that they're just showing one scene and one, uh, you know, nature scene after another with right. no actual story. But that's not the point. The point is just he's able to do this and he gets to do it. And it's a dream sequence, so it's fine. Um, and it's a it's a really fun sequence that is is like I was saying with Man with the Movie Camera. It's a guy who clearly is in love with filmmaking and is just excited that he's doing it. And I got a lot of that from Keaton. And I'd say all of Sherlock Sherlock Junior is that. Um, and and you, that well, sequence yeah. especially. You mentioned action movies before as being montage, and I think of. Um uh, I don't know what people consider the first action movie. I feel, but I feel like the twenties is where action movies, because that's where you get the Douglas Fairbanks. Sure. Um, uh, swordplay movies, but also I think steamboat bill jr, which is 1928 yeah. is, I would, I think of that as an early action movie. And then the, the, the general is definitely an action movie. Yeah, that's, that's 1930. Just, what year is general? I think is 26. Oh, it's before steamboat bill. Jr. I think so. I might, why did I think it was that. after, um, Probably because I saw it after. <laughs> That's how dumb I am. What, what an interesting world. Yeah. No, you're right. 1926. Be. Okay. But I feel like this was like 10 years ago. You like introduced me to the world of Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we watched a bunch of shit and it culminated in the general. So sure. I tend to think of the general as being like later. I think it is. It is seen as maybe his most ambitious film. Either that or Steamboat Bill Jr. As um, far as like logistics. But again, as far as filmmaking and experimentation it's Sherlock, Sherlock Jr. Jr. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah I, I mean I, I think the gen- people mostly say The General is his, is his best film but I think Steamboat Bill Jr. is your favorite it's his, my right? favorite of his yeah um, um, I haven't seen there's some big ones I haven't seen I haven't seen The Navigator Navigators is, the Nav- Navigator is very good and then there's um, Cameraman is that one of them I've not seen Cameraman. Okay, but that is him, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. So there's there's a couple of big ones I've missed out on. I recently watched Seven Chances for the first time. That's got great stuff in it. It's nowhere near the right. the peak right. of his. Uh, all right. Um, I'm ready to start jumping forward, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I... Because my next thing is in the 40s. Yeah, my next thing is in the 60s. Okay, so the 40s... And this isn't really editing so much it's just a part of editing that I want to talk about was the idea of re-editing and I want to mention the Magnificent Ambersons and the idea that a, uh, and this sounds very film school 101 I guess but the idea that a, a director can direct a whole movie but it can still be taken away from them in in editing do you know what I mean yeah that, uh, I think that's it shows it, it is an, it's illustrative of how crucial editing is yeah. that you know, uh, Orson Welles directed the whole ass movie, right? Yeah. Um, but because it was recut starting, starting at a certain point, I think, uh, uh, you're the Wells aficionado at the table. There is, cause I, he even recognized like, there's a certain, like after this point, it's no longer my movie. I can't remember exactly. How I far don't, I don't remember is. what it was. I read it in the, in the second Simon Callow biography of him. Um, but I don't remember what it is. Um, and I still think the Magnificent Ambersons is, is fantastic, but yeah, the first half is better. Um, so, uh, it, it's just, so this isn't a milestone in editing history. It's more of a 
very the sort of sad underbelly of what editing can do um that you can take you can take the thing uh well and also it also speaks to the idea that a movie is genuinely made in in the editing room like i was going to i was going to point out the entire career specifically the latter day career of terrence malick um and the fact that right he's cutting out entire characters played by notable actors incidentally yeah but that you know, he clearly just shoots and shoots and has an idea in mind and probably has an actual script. But I'm sure for him, I don't know if he would ever put it this way. The movie doesn't start yeah. coming together until he starts editing it. Well, do you know that uh, this is an analogy, an analogy I learned in film school? You probably did, too. But compare a movie making a movie to making a meal. Mm-hmm. So you write writing a screenplay is writing out your shopping list. Yeah shooting the movie is going to the grocery store and getting all the ingredients. Editing is where you're actually making the dish. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the analogy I learned that I think is, um, uh, it's a, it, 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 it it carries over one to one. And I think it carries over even more so because you can't just take all the ingredients and throw them together into a bowl. You have to measure them out just right. Sometimes you have to add them in a specific order. You know, so like editing isn't just, all right, we've got all the stuff here. Everything's been shot. We have the script here. So obviously we know what order it needs to go in. So, uh, there you go. Right. Like there are decisions that need to be made in the moment where you realize, Oh, this shot works so much better precisely because it deviates from the script, you know? And like, well, there are a few things like in the original script for jaws, not unlike the book, Hooper dies, Hmm. he dies in the cage, but then, they got this wonderful footage of the real, of a real life shark getting all wrapped up in an empty cage. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh shoot, how can we, we need to use this obviously. So what can we do? And so they move, they move some things around and yes, it required some, uh, some, you know, some reshoots. So it's not something yeah. that they realized much later, but that was like an editing decision. And that was, well, it was a number of decisions, but you know, the willingness to, sort of play it by ear often in the editing room. And if you, you know, our friend West Anthony could also talk about like the role that editing and music, like the mm-hmm. relationship they have that, Oh, if the, if music isn't working, oh, if sound yeah. design isn't working, then like you can just discard it and do something completely new in the editing room. Yeah, that was rambling. Sorry. No, no, that's, that's what I wanted to get at. Um, now you said you had something in the, the, the sixties, but I want to stop off. Okay. I guess, and this isn't a particularly year, just sort of the late fifties is where the French new wave, sure. uh, comes into play. And that is, uh, a, a newish style of editing, mm-hmm. um, that breaks a lot of rules intentionally, um, mostly, uh, with jump cuts. Um, right. I mean, that's, uh, that was my early sort of juvenile or, or not juvenile, but, uh, untrained idea of what the new wave was because it was just like oh that's like crime movies and they smoke cigarettes but with jump cuts that's kind of that was kind of my idea as if to say it's like we don't have the budget for dissolves (laughs) yeah um yeah um and uh uh, i don't know how i don't know how uh in depth we need to get it do we need to define what a jump cut is um I don't think so but i feel like maybe in the spirit of what we're trying to do maybe we should yeah so um I don't think there's a, uh, maybe there is a specific like degree of angle change sure. at, at, at which it stops being a jump cut. But the idea is if you cut 
either closer or further away or just jump through time and you're mm. still roughly at the same angle as the previous shot yeah uh that's a jump cut it's weird it's it, it doesn't feel right and no. sometimes it's when it's employed it's because it doesn't feel right it's yeah. it's on purpose um it also has a lot i mean this gets into the 180 degree line sure uh which is an idea the idea that there is a line drawn somewhere through the center of every scene and the camera needs to stay on one side of it. Yeah. Um, and you'll see in some places where the move, where the 180 degree line is broken, like in the birds, which you talked about in the movie journal, Mm -hmm. there's a thing where Tibby Hedron is watching the flames go across the, the puddle of gas and how speaking of experimental editing, I feel like that's that moment. I don't think it's that effective. I don't think it works is the problem. Yeah. Whereas, um, if you look at something like, I don't know why this leaps to mind, but, um, uh, the born identity, the, mm-hmm. the first, and I'm sure the, the Paul Greengrass ones use plenty of yeah. uh, 180 degree line breaks. But I remember when they get back to his Jason Bourne's apartment and they're like trying to figure out who he is. Yeah. And the crazy guy comes to the window and yeah. Jason Bourne stabs him in the hand during that. Yes. That whole thing. So after that, when it's just like Jason and Franco Patente, I can't remember her character's name, just sort of like, recovering together there's a yeah. number of 180 degree jumps i think sort of to to um to get you in the headspace of how uh discombobulated they are i was watching um the uh the first like real conversation between <coughs> excuse me between batman and the joker and the dark knight uh in the interrogation interrogation room mm-hmm. <coughs> and there is a very clear 180 jump um and it comes when Joker, like unsurprisingly, it comes when Joker starts taking control. Mm. Um, even though we d- we don't yet know uh, how much control he actually has, he's just taking control of the conversation. Like you know, Batman like bashed his head against the table, and he definitely seems to have the upper hand. But then Joker simply by talking. Uh, changes the general mood and gets ba- Batman's attention, and that's when there's a. Now the camera's always kind of moving, so but the, mo- the as the camera's moving, it never moves across the 180 yeah. degree. There's an actual cut. Um, another going back to film school, another clip that I saw at this point, I had not even yet seen the Lady from Shanghai, mm-hmm. but the the Hall of Mirrors sequence in the Lady, yeah. Lady from Shanghai. Uh, my and I, I had to watch it again to see my professor's. Right? My professor's contention was that Orson Welles doesn't actually break the 180 degree rule because the characters keep switching which side they're standing on. Mm-hmm. The line moves and the camera moves with it, so the camera oh, sure. keeps being on different sides of them. But it's because they're switching sides, and it's yeah. actually kind of a dance uh, that the camera is doing with the 180 degree line with the characters. That's about right. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, I haven't cool. seen that movie in too long. Uh, it's been uh, it's only been a couple of years for me. It's a good movie. So uh, um, I'm sure you hadn't forgotten that it's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, thumbs up. Um, uh, also, 1959. Before we get into the 60s, uh, is William Wyler's Ben Hur. I was going to say Ben Hur. Oh, well, I thought you said the 60s. I, and you know what? And I remember that in the shower, it's like, no, I got to bring up Ben Hur, obviously. Uh, and I, but I forgot to write it down. But yeah, I was going to say Ben Hur uh, just now. Okay. I mean, we talked about action sequences. I've never even seen the movie, but I've, uh, I've seen it's a the really, sequence. really great movie. And I mean, the chariots sequence like you know in talking about you know potemkin people talk about 
the Odessa steps and people talk about the chariot race in Ben-Hur and understandably so it is, you were talking uh, in the movie journal about like spectacle. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean the bigness of that chariot race and just, ha- yeah, it's in many ways, it's very conventional editing as we know it now, but it's just like, we need to show Ben-Hur, his enemy, we need to see specific spectators. We need to see what lap they're on. We need to see what the horses are doing. We need to be reminded that how big the crowd is. Like, there's so much that we need to capture uh, in about this sequence. And just again, it, there's a rhythm to it, and that's not something that that's not found in the script. Mm-hmm. The script just describes what happens to the chariot race. Like right. everything about this. William Wyler obviously has to like shoot the hell, cover the hell out of it. But like, and there needs to be a very specific rhythm. Like we need to know, like we've stayed on Ben Hur too long. We now need, we need to now see where they are in the race and how they're doing. Like it is a beautifully realized sequence. And I, and again, the movie is very good. Um, and that sequence is marvelous. Um, okay. Uh, what is this? Breathless is 1960. I guess we already talked about the the um, the French New Wave, um, but uh, this is when I talk about thinking that French New Wave was just uh, crime movies with jump cuts. I'm thinking of Breathless, yes, which is of course, probably the first French New Wave movie that I saw. Uh, I probably saw it when I was in high school on VHS. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, I didn't see Breathless until uh, until I lived here, actually, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then I would have seen shoot the piano player after that. Um, I'm not sure what else came after that, but then in 1961, you've got, uh, what I think is one of the greatest films ever made and a movie that, uh, you hated the first time you say you saw it. Uh, Elaine Renee's last year at Marion bed. Well, let's stay in 1960 for a moment. Oh, okay. Because one thing that, you know, we're talking about the different role that editing can play, but in Psycho, okay. editing and the literal cuts mm-hmm. in the shower scene actually act as cuts. Yeah. Like the idea is, you know, in a way you could say like, oh, well, we're cutting away just as the knife is like penetrating yeah. the skin. Did you but see 7852? No, not yet. Yeah. I just saw that it's on Hulu and I, and I was like, Oh, I, yeah. and I'm excited to watch it's it. It's worth watching. There's only one shot where you can actually see the knife touching her skin yeah. in the entire, yeah. And it just kind of slides it. across her yeah. stomach. Right. Uh, no, it's, um, I think he actually did it in reverse where he oh. took like, the dull knife, uh, and like just not actually didn't actually cut her, right. but like, uh, put it into her belly a little bit and then pulled it out. Yeah. So then, and then it's, the like, shot no, Janet, is it's fine. I'm doing <laughs> it in reverse. Like you're still cutting me, Alfred. Yeah. And it's not Janet Leach. She's, it was oh, a, that's a body right, double yeah. who was interviewed extensively in 1752. I have no doubt. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so that's an instance where, you know, we, we talk about, you know, a POV camera. Well, there's not really a lot of POV editing, but I feel like the closest we could come is is the shower scene in Psycho, because every cut is a cut. Mm. You know, yeah. um, it's not merely a means to cover something, a means to get away from something. It actually is. Every edit is an actual stand-in for a physical thing that is happening. Uh, 
and then yeah last year Marion Bad uh, again directed by Alain René um, <laughs> I don't like this at all <laughs> I'm trying we got an email this is like a couple months ago now about okay. how Americans don't know how to pronounce French names and so I've been trying to uh, make more of an effort to learn the correct way and that that French R where there's kind of an H in there somewhere yeah. is kind of fun to do so <laughs> Alain René René uh, I like it um, anyway, last year, man, but, um, couldn't be more different in its feel than the shower scene. Yeah. Uh, because this is a, I mean, this is another, um, I guess it's like montage, except montage tends to compress time last year at Marion bad, either elongates time or kind of obliterates the concept of time, Yeah, which is something that I like about all of Renee's movies. Um, uh, particularly Hiroshima Mon Amour, which might actually be my favorite of his movies, um, but also Jitem Jitem and Muriel. Um, you lose yourself in them because he mm-hmm. doesn't, he's not, he's not really concerned with, um, you know, the pacing making sense in terms of real life pacing. The yeah. movie does have its own cadence and it lulls you into it, but it's, uh, there's no telling how much time is passing. Uh, and that's intentional. Yeah, um, it's always interesting when movies try to emulate the way our brain works, not utilize the way our brain works. It tries to actually simulate it, you know, and we, you get stuff like Mulholland Drive and uh, specifically when, when it's trying to show like me- how memory works or how dreams work. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's going to be this fluidity to it. And yeah in a dream and i would even say in memory of course memory is related to time but when we're thinking about the memory we're not thinking about mm-hmm. time really it's not happening the you know it's not happening in real time we don't have yeah. memories yeah. in real time uh just like with dreams and so yeah just this this very languid pacing uh for last year marion bod is something that speaks to uh, another point that I was going to make about editing editing a little bit uh, later, but it certainly applies to this is that knowing when not to cut or when to like draw something out and it is just as important, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a choice as, oh, yeah. uh, cutting like, Oh no, no, we've gone on too long. That reminds me of something that I had put on the list. We skipped over it, which I'm fine with, uh, but another 1959 movie, um, called Compulsion under Orson Welles, sure. uh, Orson Welles vehicle. Not uh, mm-hmm. he didn't d- he didn't direct it, which has I'm sure he <laughs> yeah, had some and, opinions. Yeah, um, but it has like the longest true monologue in film history, at least up to that point, where mm. he talks for ten minutes straight. Um, and I think that's that's the kind of thing where you know when we're talking about montage and action movies. Talk about Elaine Renee. Um, we're talking about editing that kind of calls attention to itself. Yeah, but to have a character talk for 10 minutes um, and it remain interesting, that's kind of a feat of editing too, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes that's, uh, I won't notice editing while I'm watching a movie, but then, so you, we talked about, uh, you and I both recently just saw Christopher Robin. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us thought it was that good, but I did at the end go, that was two hours. Like it does move. Yeah. And I feel like that's a good way of sort of judging good editing is if a movie 
doesn't uh, doesn't get bogged down. And not that we're talking about Christopher Robin right now, but like because we already did. But one thing that I did get a sense of is, and I think this is on purpose. Time, even though the character like he's got the weekend and all that sort of thing, like he is very aware of time, like in the Hundred Acre Wood, and also just and it starts to infiltrate his life itself. Is that like time starts to not mean quite so much. Uh, and right. from a, str- it's, it's something I started thinking about in terms of structure. Like the film is not structured in an, in any kind of traditional way. Um, and so it, that actually allowed us to spend time just getting to know Pooh and then not mm-hmm. quite knowing what the, where the crisis is going to be except, Oh, it's already there. It's his work crisis. Like, but surely that can't be the crisis, right? Like the way it's structured actually helps to undercut the characters like priorities. Right. I don't mean to give the movie more credit than it's due, but no, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to give Mark Forster credit for trying sure. to make a good movie. I don't think Mark Forster's a hack. I think I tend not to like his movies right. that much or not to love them at least. But, uh, I do think he's an auteur of sorts. Anyway, of uh, sorts. <laughs> uh, 1963. Is that, uh, what do you no, I think the next one for me is 66. Okay, so it's 1963 is another movie that I saw fairly recently this year, uh, Tom Jones. Sure. And this is a movie that is all about the editing. It seems like uh, it's kind of, it, it, I mean, it couldn't feel less like a Terrence Malick film, but in yeah. terms of the way it's made, it kind of seems like they had the screenplay, they went out and shot it every which way, and then Tony Richardson came back and really, really made the movie that we know in editing because it's full of freeze frames and wipes and uh, all, cor- all sorts of jumps and like everything about that movie that makes it so lively and so funny uh, is in the editing. I yeah. think um, it's it's the it's if t- uh, Terrence Malick made comedies, maybe. Uh. Yeah, it's <laughs> oh, boy. Wow, what would that be like? I guess it'd be like that. Uh, I wonder what Terrence Malick finds funny. Do you know what I mean? There, it is. There is a Twitter account, and it's like fake Terrence Malick, uh-huh. and he just says like the most inane, stupid, fratty bullshit. Yeah, which is like, ah, oh, that's really funny to picture. But yes, that's oh, but a good see, question. Yeah, I don't see him that way. I, I, I like to imagine Terrence Malick getting a big kick out of the Family Circus. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's how I imagine Terrence Malick. See, is. I could see, yeah, and I, I would kind of like looking that. at little Billy like meandering around. And he's like, "That's how I'm going to make my movies." Uh-huh. Um, just you know, <laughs> wandering around the living room. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, uh, uh, all right, so you had sixty six. Yeah. Okay. I think it's sixty six. I think Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is sixty six. Right? Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. So I think. I mean, obviously. So I was showing the the final sequence uh, in class. But what's interesting is I was showing it to talk about camera shots. But it's also edited in such a specific way, you know, speaking of like it's very languid and mm-hmm. it sh- and and the camera's, you know, the camera starts very wide and then it gets closer and closer and then re- it actually boils everything down to the the only three things that matter in a gunfight. Hands, eyes, guns. Mm-hmm. And we just go back and forth, back and forth, checking in with every character, seeing their hands, their gun, their eyes, all that sort of thing. And then finally, you know, and then it gets the editing gets faster and faster and faster as it goes. Um, but one thing that occurred to me is that, I mean, of course, none of these things we can 
you know, we can devote an episode to editing. We can devote an episode to cinematography and makeup or any of these other things, but none of them exist in a vacuum. You know, you still need the right camera shots, which is why that last sequence between, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach and Lee Van Cleef is why it's so beautifully realized is because it's shot in just the right way. Like we get, we know every, it's, it's like what, what I was talking about with, with Ben Hur, except I think the, the editing here plays a more vital role of getting us slowly, but surely more, it speeds up a little bit more and a little bit more. And now we're just cutting only to close ups. Mm-hmm. but that to me, and then of course there's the music, which I'll talk about the interaction of music and editing in a moment. But, um, okay. But all of we these. We do things, one of these on sound. I don't know if I said that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was That'd that was like our. Too. That was our big. To me, that was the big takeaway from Columbia. Like there was such an emphasis on oh, sound. Right, yeah, Columbia there. College, Chicago is where we went yeah. to undergrad film school. I only went to undergrad film school, but now I now we have to specify undergrad because you are uh, a master of film. I, I'm only a master of cinema and media studies. All right, not <laughs> all of film, just okay. the study of cinema and media, all media, by the way. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I was going to make a political joke, but I don't have the energy. Um, oh, good. <laughs> but yeah. And so it's the, so when you talk about editing, you're probably going to wind up talking about cinematography as well. And just the way that you really can't have one without the other. Obviously. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. Uh, uh, well, okay. Um, 1969. Nice. Okay. Um, staying in the Western genre, we've got Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Okay. Uh, and I feel like I didn't realize this when we put, when I put together my list here, but, um, we keep coming back to action movies. Uh, and it seems like a lot of our sort of like leaps forward in editing mm-hmm. are leaps forward in action cinema. And the wild bunch does kind of represent a milestone in action cinema. Um, in that it's, um, incredibly violent oh yes and it's a movie that at uh what almost almost 50 years old next year right yeah still feels incredibly violent oh yes uh, uh yeah clearly sam peckinpah looked at bonnie and clyde and said oh you're just gonna kill two people huh yeah all right we can yeah. do better than that he said that scene but a whole movie yeah that's what he wanted <laughs> he's like eh, not enough scorpions yeah, yeah. and ants and uh, everybody looks uh too uh cool and uh calm we need to make it nice and sweaty and super gross uh, um but i actually do want to go back go back to 2001 a space odyssey okay um which is 68 68 yeah it's the 50th anniversary this year that's right yeah um and that uh you know obviously there's one I'll bring this. I'll bring this up along with Lawrence of Arabia. There's like there are oh, these the two match cut match cut with in Lawrence of Arabia. It's a literal. It's match. a literal match cut. Uh, and then with 2001, the ape throws the bone, and then it uh, cuts to you know thousands of years later. Yeah, uh, and it Do looks you know, like a spaceship. Um, we talked in the movie journal about how I recently watched uh, Paul and Pressburger's A Canterbury Tale for the first time. Mm-hmm. That has one of those, too, because it has a prologue in the 1300s with, like, the pilgrims traveling to Canterbury. Mm-hmm. And one of them, like, uh, sets off, like, a messenger pigeon. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to uh, a warplane flying over nice. uh, over England um, that matches with the pigeon. It's great. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And that predates both of the examples you just uh, 
All right. Considered so by, by decades. Kubrick and Lean hacks. Yeah. Um, rip off, ripped off Michael Powell. <laughs> that might uh, be true, actually. Yeah, um, I feel like pretty much every director has been ripping off Michael Powell since at least since the. That's about right. Uh, yeah. Since the 70s, probably. Um, but then there's also. Uh, Look, to, uh, 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 greatness borrows genius steals. That's that's the saying. Yeah, I feel like there's that's that's not a legal defense though. Uh, you can still lose a lot of money if you uh, if you say that in front of a judge. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, in two thousand one, when the there's a, a really wonderful sequence when the uh, ape first gets hold of the bone and is very slowly figuring out that if that I can use this uh-huh. to you know bash things heads in and it's just and so we see it just like hitting uh uh other bones yeah. on the ground but it's cut with uh the actual was it like a tapir or whatever it is whatever that oh, animal right. is yeah. like we see that we in between in between uh the the ape like hitting stuff on the ground we see these various tapirs like falling on the ground and so it's like oh so it's cutting to where we're going to wind up eventually. And then he throws the bone. So like, we don't actually see those scenes of Of them hunting, of them hunting them, using the bones. We just see little flashes of, okay, we all know where this is headed. And then, okay, we're now headed thousands of years in the future. Um, and it's just a, it's an interesting choice. I think where it's showing us like maybe a couple days in the future, but just flashes of it before making a, a huge jump. Um, speaking of a huge jump, I don't have anything until 1993 now. Um, I will say that I think, uh, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to write it down cause I just wrote it down cause uh, I thought it was good, which is the, uh, the French connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the action, yeah, not an action movie, but an action sequence. Yeah. And, and I do think that it's, I think that, uh, I guess it, the chariot, race and Ben hers could be seen as sort of a chase, but I do think that the chase scene is a very specific type of action sequence and one that needs to be edited very specifically. It needs to be shot very specifically, obviously, because that's one where we always need to be going the same direction. Otherwise it's going to be very jarring. Um, and then yes, being able to know where we're headed and what progress we've made. That's the other thing. Like we need to know that we have moved forward and that means Cut, knowing when to cut to the right thing at the right time, which is the thing that I'm going to say over and over again. I'm, I'll try not to say it that often, but that instinct of knowing when to do that is what makes the great editors great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So 19, 90, 1993. Okay. What do you got? Uh, well, this is one I've never even seen this movie, oh, okay. but this is another little factoid okay. that I learned. Um, Lost in Yonkers, 1993. I've seen it, yes. You have seen it? Do you know what's notable about it from an editing standpoint? No. First feature film cut entirely on an Avid. So first really? time a feature film was converted into digital and cut entirely on an Avid. That's interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. It's Lost always, in Yonkers. I love stuff like that where like Thanks there's always got to be something yeah. first yeah. or something last. Um, so... Uh, for me, I think this is 93. It might be 92, but I think it's 93. I have shortcuts. Um, okay. And so, and I, I wanted to package a lot of these together. Shortcuts, Magnolia, Nashville, these kind of ensemble things. And that, but I'll, I'll incorporate, you know, 
Avengers Infinity War into it. Mm-hmm. And even something like Crash, which won Best Editing. When we have a lot of characters, and this is, and you and I talked about this when we talked about Infinity War, but like when you have a lot of characters, we if we spend too long with any one person, we actually start to forget that the other characters exist. Mm-hmm. And so um, there needs to be a very specific type of rhythm. Yeah. Which is interesting given how big of a role jazz plays in shortcuts, how big a role music in general plays in Magnolia, like that John Bryan score, which mm-hmm. is just very, which keeps things going. And then obviously Nashville is a, is a very musical movie. Music doesn't serve as much of a transition from one edit to another, but it's interesting how often these types of movies that require us to really keep a lot of stuff, uh, yeah. in play, uh, music tends to be a very tends to be something of a driving force behind the editing itself. Yeah. I would say the hours also as an example, not though that cast is not very big, but there are several okay. different time periods and the Philip, yeah. Philip glass score is used as a transition along with the editing to get us from one time period to the next. And obviously you've already mentioned cloud Atlas, which we were going to mention again. I feel like infinity war. Yeah, it is definitely part of this, but infinity war pushes things it works for me. I think mm-hmm. the movie is very good, but uh, we spend longer without characters in infinity war than I think we do in any of the other things you mentioned. Oh, undoubtedly. Yes. Um, yes. Because the, well, infinity war is also more plot based than the other things mm-hmm. that I'm talking about. Um, you know, and in that, in that regard, infinity wars, it probably should be compared more to like Lord of the Rings where mm. we have people in completely different parts of yeah, the yeah. world. Um, but yeah, so let's, okay, we can move on. 97. 97. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. What do you got? I'm almost at the end of my list here, so I don't think. Do you, is it Sweet Hereafter? Uh, no. Damn it. It's Star Wars. The oh. Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy, oh, yeah. being okay. re-edited. Yeah. This, this is like a sort of a mirror version of what I was talking about with the Magnificent Amersons in 1942. Um, this is another thing where a movie that we all know Unlike many of the Simpsons, we never got to see it. Yeah. We all know these Star Wars movies, and then the director gets to come along and say, uh, no, they weren't finished then. Now they're yeah. finished. So it's, ex- um, it's the opposite of Orson Welles, uh, exactly. where he's like, no, yeah. I still have control 20 years later. Yeah. And of course, George Lucas is not the only one to do this, where he's right. got his recut Blade Runner uh, a handful of still, times. Still doing it. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. That last one's called The Final Cut. I think I he's done. I'll believe it when I see it. When he's <laughs> dead, I'll believe it. You haven't seen it? <laughs> Speaking of being dead. Uh, all right. Um, yeah, it's late at night. So, uh, so anyway, I just wanted to mention this, uh, the idea that, um, a movie, I guess, I don't know that I necessarily love the idea, but it can be a living document that sure. a filmmaker can go back and, sure. uh, and tweak. Cause he's changed those movies even since then. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the Blu-ray release was different than the DVD release. Even, even as far as, uh, coloring, like the, yeah, sure. like the, I think, I think the Blu-ray release of Star Wars has a has just the slightest bit of magenta hue to the whole thing. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but uh, I actually do want to go back and talk about something. Um, the idea of taking. Okay, I'm not sure how I would even classify "Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid." 
Oh yeah. You know what I'm talking about though, right? It's taking pieces of footage from other movies, shooting Steve Martin in black and white and splicing him into these other movies and making it into a, we'll put quotes around coherent Uh story. Um, and, uh, it's something I don't see happening very often, uh, probably because it doesn't make a great deal of sense, but, um, but yeah, that's, that is, if any, if nothing else, it is definitely a feat of editing. Yeah. And then I guess there's also something like hoop dreams. That's yeah. That's, um, difficult for me to contemplate shooting for eight years and then making a movie, even though the movie is two hours and 45 minutes long or whatever. The movie is not eight years long. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, and speaking of, I guess, uh, travesties of editing to go back to movies that are very long and then not, uh, greed, uh, which is like what, neither have I, uh, but I know that it was originally what, eight hours long. Wow. And they cut it down to like 90 minutes. (laughs) No wonder Eric von Stroheim went totally fucking insane. But, um, but yeah, so something like hoop dreams, which was not nominated for documentary, but was nominated for editing. Um, because the editors, I'm sure they all just said like, I don't know how you do this. But also because the, documentary process is weird the nomination process is weird i i i, yeah. I can never remember what it is but i know i was I there's was, always something that every year people are complaining that oh yeah uh that it's limiting somehow. i was listening back to uh an old episode of siskel and ebert in which they were talking about like when they would talk about like their surprises of like oscar inclusions and snubs and they were so furious about <laughs> hoop dreams not being nominated for documentary and then they spelled out like what the nominating process looks like for the documentary branch and it was interesting i don't remember what they said but it was it's it definitely had its own rules at the time uh the i only have one movie left and that's okay 2002 okay um i have i have a 1999 okay let's go i've got the limey oh yeah speaking of movies about memory but you don't realize that's what it is I mean, we do have flashbacks, oddly enough, to an earlier Terrence Stamp movie called Poor Cow. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are these, uh, like, I wrote a paper about it when uh, when I did my undergrad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I hate having to say that now. Oh, I love um, it. But, uh, but, yeah, and so there are these sequences there's there's one in particular it it happens throughout all throughout the movie but there's one sequence in partic- in particular between Terrence Stamp and Leslie Ann Warren where they're having one conversation over three places and it will cut to them in these different locations mm-hmm. but the but the conversation is linear yeah the 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 one line leading into another that all makes perfect sense but there, there's a moment when like Leslie Ann Warren says something and it cuts to Terrence Stamp like his reaction, just a facial reaction in a completely different location, and then it will cut to his facial reaction in another location as well, and it's like, why are they doing it this way? It's kind of awesome. Yeah. Even even if you don't know eventually what it's going to be, it's a really fascinating way to make a movie, and in re- then you at the end of the film, you cut to Terrence stamp on an airplane going back home and you realize that he's reflecting on, he's reflecting on his, his LA adventure. His summer vacation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, Oh, it's over so fast. (laughs) Um, now I gotta go buy like pencils and new pants. Yeah. Um, but, 
but the uh, so him thinking back on that is that it's almost like like I was saying about memory before like we don't we think of the important parts of a memory not all the little in in between moments and so what he remembers is these are the three places we went and this is this was the important conversation we had. I don't exactly remember where it was, or this was the whole conversation boiled down to just the few minutes that I mm-hmm. that are important to me. And so, uh, so it creates this very strange little sequence that is that makes complete sense narratively, and yet is almost a, that I, I would say is experimental uh, editorially. So I know I know I've listened to the commentary. Did Soderbergh just shoot the full scene three times and then I believe find so, it yes. in editing? Out? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, all right. 2002, my last movie. Uh, I have 2000. I have not 2001 a space odyssey. We I had that earlier, that, yeah. but I have something for the right. year 2000, which is memento. Oh, um, ah, okay. I do think that that's a very, it, it's a well edited film. And I was actually just watching somebody, I think our friend, uh, friend of the show, Jason Eakin on Twitter posted like a, a video of Christopher Nolan sketching out on like a whiteboard, like what the narrative looks like. And he just showed like this line that curves around and he says, that's the narrative. And he goes, but right here's the present, here's the past. And we're going to cut back and forth between the two. And we will lead to this point here, which is actually not the end. Mm -hmm. It is an end, but it's not the end. And, and it's, it is a very, like, I actually think that narratively it doesn't make that much sense, especially when dealing with memory loss, but structurally it's really fascinating. And the idea that, when you're not dealing with, when you can't remember things, then like I said, there's really no, there really is no, the no beginning to a story or an end to a story. There's just whatever end you happen to be at right now. And that I think Memento does that very, very well. Um, and the fact that you're able to keep track of it as well as you do. But, uh, okay. So I think that's it for me. Okay. So 2002, I wanted to mention, uh, you talked about, um, editing is also about not cutting. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about Alexander Sekurov's Russian Ark, which is a 96 minute movie with no cuts in it. Yeah. Um, and I, um, I remember loving this movie when I, when I saw it. Um, and I feel like it's become trendy to hate the long take. Do you know what I mean? In movies? Well, I, you know what? I didn't like long takes before, before it was cool. cool. Yeah. Um, and I still, I mean, I've said plenty of times on the podcast, my rule of thumb is usually if I notice or I'm thinking about the long take while it's happening, then yeah, I don't like it. I yeah, don't like, off. uh, yeah, I don't like the one in, uh, what's it called? True detective. Uh, no, I children, like that one. I children didn't realize. Uh, no, I like atonement. Uh, most of those atonement is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, the, uh, Dunkirk sequence mm-hmm. in atonement, uh, is one that seems real showy to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I think as visual effects has made it easier to hide cuts, you're seeing more movies like, uh, in children of man, I don't know if all of those are actual full takes. Are they? I, I think there's a hidden cut somewhere yeah. in there. I don't remember. And I know there's a hidden, yeah. the, there's a part where the, uh, uh, the lens gets cleaned. I don't know if you were like, yeah, that's it, true, near yeah. the end when they're going through that whole like battle sequence at like the, uh, the apartment building or whatever. I haven't yeah, seen yeah. it. I haven't seen it since the theater. So, um, uh, but there is one point where like 
something gets splattered on the lens and it stays for a while and then it goes past something and yeah. conveniently like clean the lens. Um, but then you're seeing stuff. Uh, I say, I know a lot of people complained about this, but I loved last year. Um, there's a fight sequence in atomic blonde that I didn't realize was uh, until the next day when uh, people were complaining about it or the day it came out when people were complaining about it. I didn't realize it was an unbroken, broken take, but of course it's not. It's yeah. many, many takes yeah. um, because they, it's a, uh, I don't think anyone, any, not even, not just Charlie Theron. I don't think any stunt person could do everything that yeah. she does in that take without without taking a break. Um, I think it's. I, I I like it when it's used. I, I like the lack of cutting when it's used well. Uh, if I feel like it's showing off, um, maybe I don't like it quite so much. <laughs> but uh, usually, I would say nine out of ten times. I don't notice like it's been, the true detective one. Perfect example. It wasn't yeah. until I, uh, God forbid logged onto Twitter. I'm thinking about spending less time on Twitter, but probably a good call. Um, it wasn't until then that I realized people were, uh, either loving it or hating it. Right. Uh, I didn't even realize it was unbroken at the time. I don't think I like, I don't, I don't think I hate unbroken takes. It's, it's much the same thing as, as you. Like if I notice it, it's like, it's like, Oh, I, Oh, this is unbro- an unbroken take. That's impressive are they counting on me thinking that right yeah, now? Yeah. Uh, like I don't, I don't care movie, for that, yeah. but there or is like, uh, a stupid, uh, panic room with the camera going through like the coffee mug handle. It's like, you know, yeah. the, and there's a moment where like the camera kind of goes through, I think like a lock or something like that. Uh-huh. I might be thinking of something else, but, uh, in which case that at least fits thematically. Right. Yeah. Coffee mug handle. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You're just showing off. Yeah. Uh, but uh but I will say there is one uh unbroken take and I did write it down here but there is one unbroken take that I think is so effective and the camera's not moving it's just they just chose when Steve McQueen made 12 years a slave oh okay there's a sequence where Shiatella Geofor has been I guess lynched but like the reason I say I guess is because they did not do it with the intention of killing him. Right. They did it with the intention of just like torturing and intimidating. And so I, I think that probably still counts, but it's a, it's a wide shot. He's fairly small in the frame and he's just hanging there. And basically as long as he's on his tiptoes, he's, he's, he's going to be okay. So you just see him standing there and the sound design is, is vital here because you hear the squishing of his toes mm-hmm. uh, in the mud and the camera just stays there. It's a static shot and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And I saw it at a critic screening and every, it, it oh, th- that shot might be five. It's not five minutes. It's probably one minute, maybe mm-hmm. even less. I don't know. But every few seconds after a certain point, every few seconds you would hear someone in the audience go, Ugh. one of them was me uh-huh. because and I think what it was is every critic at that point needed there to be a cut, mm-hmm. like a cut closer, it, like not a different scene. It could be, a, we could get closer or further away, whatever you want it to be. But that cut provides us with something of a break, even if it's, unco- even if it's unconscious and we know that, oh, well they probably put an Apple box up in between camera setups right. for yeah, sure. Yeah. tells you for, but this is just like a link between character actor and audience and the the choice to not cut is what allowed that 
uh, I think my favorite version of that intentionally not cutting when the audience wants you to is in Funny Games. <sighs> yeah. The aftermath of the first killing, I guess, that we see. Yeah. We're left in the room with the body for almost 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, the camera does move. It pans. But um, yeah. it, it is an unbroken take. Yeah. Uh uh, yeah, it's that's horrifying. And there's a and there's a my, very and Michael Haneke is loving it. Oh no, oh, no question. <laughs> uh, and then there's a long take along those lines. It's not it's not as as uh, clear cut as that. But uh, at the end of the lobster, uh, speaking <laughs> oh, right. of critics making noises, um, you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah, right? yeah. So right at the very end, and that and it it's going on, and the critic right next to me, she goes fucking Christ. Like, <laughs> like it was something like that, but yeah. it, was, it was some variation of those words. Um, and I was just, and I wasn't bothered because she was thinking what I was saying. Uh-huh. Uh, no, she, I was thinking what she was saying, but, um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, editing is a vital part of filmmaking and certainly there are milestones that I'm sure we did not even uh, get yeah. around to yeah, but, let us uh, know. but yeah in the comment section please let us know and uh, and here's an, here's a fun thing I know that uh, Patton Oswalt has mentioned this before but it was something that I was thinking about as I was writing this why is it that m- that some of the most notable and successful film ed- editors are women like when um, we think of some of the best, I, I, there's like Walter Murch. Yeah. But we think of like uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. Is that how you say it? Uh, I don't know. Okay. That's how I've said it. And then like yeah. Sally Menke. And like we saw Tarantino after with uh, Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. which is a, which I think is a, a fairly well put together movie, but like it certainly does not have the same pacing as his previous films. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, the, I know the widely told story is that editing in the early days started off as being seen as a woman's job because it was seen as similar to sewing. It's something hmm. that, you know, uh, you need little fingers and dexterity, yeah. uh, you know, because it, that, and after because, a while you couldn't employ children to do it. So, um, yeah, because <laughs> then this is before the, uh, epoch, the sea change that was lost in Yonkers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> people were, you know, physically editing, you know, cutting and yeah, taping yeah. together a film. It was seen as being similar to sewing. That is the story that I've been told. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. So that's that. Let us know if you like this, uh, and we'll do more of them. Yeah. Um, and feel free to suggest, uh, any particular, yeah. uh, episodes. Um, you can find us at battleship There's reviews this week of Christopher Robin and Nico 1988 and never going back reviewed by Scott. Um, and you can email us at David at battleship or Tyler at battleship I'm on Twitter at Davey pretension. Um, also, uh, premium content. There's plenty of great stuff for you to pick up uh, at the at our premium content store on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, it supports the podcast and it gets you some more entertainment that uh, you haven't heard on the regular feed here. Uh, and, and, we're t- actually, and we're actually fucking coming up on another. Sorry for swearing. It's getting late. We're coming up on another damn commentary. Like. Um, in yeah, like in maybe September? a month. Yeah, month we gotta we gotta yeah. find a time because I'm yeah. very busy in September. So yeah. we will have to f- uh, figure this out. Uh, you're on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. You also have another podcast called More Than One Lesson. Is there anything going on there right now? Yeah, uh, this week Josh and I did a minisode about uh, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story, which is the 
48th best film of all time, according to the More Than One Lesson listeners. Uh, they did a vote, I guess it was like a year and a half ago, so we're doing a mini-sode series about each film, and so we've talked about The Princess Bride, Singing in the Rain, and now we're at Tokyo Story. All right, uh, so check out all that, and thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 